Welcome to the greatest show where uh, we have um, people to talk to about things. I'm DJ Allen, and I'm joined by Trisha. Hi. Kevin, or Metal Jesus. I used to have long hair, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> and our esteemed guest, the mecca of RPG, Eddie Webb. I, and I still have long hair, so. Fuck you. <laughs> I feel like we have four varying stages of hair from DJ to metal to me to Eddie. Yeah, I went I went bald in my 20s. Uh, Kevin literally just cut his hair a couple of months ago. A month ago? Okay. Here. Oh, wow. Uh, Trisha keeps getting her hair cut to that uh, asymmetrical look. And, and, and then we've got Eddie, who, who doesn't look like he's seen a barber uh, this decade. Uh, <laughs> not since Ireland, actually. I was... Uh, so... <laughs> I listened to the Onyx Pathcast. I, I, I came across it completely by accident on episode one. So I found it immediately when it came out. Oh, nice. And then um, when you mentioned on the show that you weren't in Ireland, or you had mentioned that you were in on the East Coast somewhere instead of being in Ireland, I'm like, because <gasps> I know that the first time I asked you, trying to coordinate Irish time and, and here would have been a little bit nightmarish, but I would have figured out a way. Yeah, because this would have been 3 a.m. <laughs> right um, and so then to make that 10 for you i would have had to be i had had to be on at like eight in the morning or something to that effect uh let's see if it was 10 p.m for me it would have been uh eight so actually 2 p.m for you 2 p.m yeah so way earlier in the day yes and since i am a mailman um that makes it difficult if i don't have the saturday off like i did not today i can understand that'd be a problem I burnt my head too. <laughs> it's the first time it's seen sun since <laughs> I don't know a long time. I wear a hat all the time, and I decided not to wear a hat yesterday, and boom, now it's red and rosy. <laughs> and, and I love that this will all be great in the audio-only version of the podcast. <laughs> this see, <laughs> I comment about that all the time. Like, <laughs> the audio people to check out the video because I leave the video up. Uh, well, uh, bonus features. <laughs> I did put out the only two gaming books that I physically own. Everything else is digital. Because I love, I love the game. And I got some people to play it with me while I was in the Navy. Um, but they, didn't, they weren't really into it. I love the game. I would love to play it all the time. But... <sighs> yeah, I mean, have you checked out the uh, 20th Anniversary Edition for Wraith? We're, we're just wrapping that one up. So really, huh. I wanted to do, I, I want the physical book, but I'm also smart enough to realize that I should probably get the digital because where we live is not very spacious and having physical media is kind of a problem. So I, I know that pain. <laughs> so like when I, when V20 came out, I got it digitally instead of physically because of that reason. Right. Um, I did buy the Chronicles of Darkness and um, Vampire the Requiem when they came out initially as books, but have since sold them off and got digital versions because of the space issue. Yeah, another thing. I mean, uh, especially with an international move, both uh, I got rid of a lot of my physical gaming books. I mean, just I have like 
10% of what I used to own originally. But now it's all digital stuff because it's just easier to keep track of. And sadly, it, I mean, you can't dog ear anything, but digitally you should be able to bookmark all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, I, I, I can carry hundreds of books with me on an iPad. Yeah, and also you can like mark things up, you can highlight things, so you're not ruining the book or anything. Yeah. It's nice. You know, I think when Morgan moved to England, one of our friends, I think that all she bought, brought was media. I think she left everything else at home and was worried about whether or not she could find a VCR <laughs> and was bringing all kinds of books and and VHS tapes and and like that's all she moved with. Wow. <laughs> Morgan it has a large Doctor Who collection and that's how we kind of hooked up was that I'm a Doctor Who fan too so Oh, so am I. Now, are you from the old stuff or just the new stuff? All of it. All of it. I mean, I mean I'll mean, i show you how nerdy I am. Hang on a second. I have the uh, big finish stuff on my phone. The oh, audio wow. dramas. I've, I've listened to a lot of it. Let me show you how nerdy I am. Oh, we're better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Hang on. Hang on. Uh, where is it? Oh, it's on this bookshelf. Damn it. Oh, I ha also have the um, About Time books. They're the, the analysis of all the different seasons. Gotcha. And I now I'm laughing. Hanging... Oh. So, I, have, I, have, I have this hanging on our fridge. <laughs> yeah, I got the, the Tom Baker. Oh, he's my favorite. <laughs> he is mine too. <laughs> I I, 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 I personally I like them all, but I like Colin Baker the best because he's the one with the coat. But he never got a chance to kind of stretch his legs on TV, but he really got a chance in audio. And I'm bitten. Oh yeah, those. especially his run with Evelyn is fantastic. Whenever I see one of his, I immediately go Colin get Baker. it. Yeah, Colin Baker on Big Finish is fantastic. You're kind of quiet. Now I feel like I'm lacking. Yeah. <laughs> well, Don't worry. I'm going to be completely lost to the rest of the conversations. No, right. so this, the is, this is the moment. Yeah, we get a little moment. This is this is all I get. And then we leave her behind after this. Right. <laughs> I do have one question that I haven't gotten a chance to ask anybody important about yet. No, <laughs> I'm not. A well, you're. Well, I see how we rate, Kevin. You're on the inside. So, White Wolf did the whole storyteller's vault thing. Is there going to be anything like that for the the Chronicles of Darkness? Yeah, that's White Wolf. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Because the response I kind of got from them, because I did ask somebody, it, the kind of response I got from them was it was kind of up to Onyx Path. So I was like, well, now I'm confused. That's, that's news to me. Interesting. Because <laughs> <laughs> of the two vampires, I like Requiem better. I don't mind Masquerade, but I like Requiem better. Mm-hmm. And I have lots of ideas and things I want to put out, but that's how I want to put them out as a storyteller's vault. <laughs> that's all. I mean, I mean, we're um, just kind of exploring it ourselves. I mean, we did we did uh, uh, Canis Minor for the Pugmire game, um, and we did a, a Slarison vault for uh, Scarlands. So, I mean, it's something you know, the community content concept is something we definitely want to do, and we. We've already got a Scion at least, and probably Trinity Continuum as well. So it's definitely a concept we like. Um, 
but uh, uh, to be fair, the, the, the Chronicles Darkness stuff, that's a slightly different chunk uh, of Onyx Pass. So I don't know all the details. Obviously, they may, Rich may have already been thinking about that with uh, the drive through guys, about doing community content for that, and I just wasn't in that meeting or whatever. Um, so cool. Yeah, I mean, if it's on us, that's something might be might be interesting to do at some point. And maybe somebody misspoke because I've I never get to talk to the same people twice whenever I contact anyone. So, but yeah, it happens. I mean, that the that the nature of this kind of thing is that because it's 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 a license. So I mean, uh, Onyx Path has a license from White Wolf to to make these kinds of products, um, but also we had license while the property transitioned from one company to another. Um, so it is kind of a, of a weird moment where we've actually been working on the products longer than the new companies had the license. Um, so it, it occasionally a who's you know, neither side of this wants to step each other's toes. We all kind of respect each other. And we want to make sure that both sides are doing really cool stuff. Um, so every once in a while, sometimes a little bit of like, um, oh, is it okay if we do this? Oh, have you guys thought about that? You know, so it's it, it, it's getting better as, as they set up, well, settles in and starts wanting to make their stuff and moving forward with things. Um, but I know at least, especially the first year, there's a bit of like, okay, what do we do? How do we handle this? Because we're already making books and now we have new people that we're, you know, reporting to and getting approvals from. And that's why and I kind so of knew. That's why I kind of knew that things might be a little bit gray area for a while because of the whole big split. And and now that they're making V5 with uh, basically porting Requiem in, I was also wondering. Well, I mean, um, I, I just looked at V5 myself um, a little bit ago, and, and um, it looks like definitely there's been some inspiration there. But they're also doing some really cool new things that we haven't done yet. So, I mean, it, it's less... I, I mean, and again, I'm not working on the game at all, so this is only little bits I've seen. Um, it doesn't make some evolution. I mean, Vampire the Masquerade was the storyteller system, and then that evolved a couple of times. And then uh, when World of Darkness came around, that was the storytelling system, and then that evolved for a couple of times. And then V20 also evolved in a different direction, and then now V5 is taken. So, I mean, each, each step is kind of an evolution and drawing from what worked in previous versions. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I highly doubt it in here. I mean, much more along the lines of, oh, hey, those bits worked over the past 10 years of Chronicles of Darkness. So let's take some of those cool bits that really work well and also some bits that worked from classic Vampire the Masquerade and classic World of Darkness. I, I, I would guess that'll probably be some of the inspiration for that. Um, I also know that uh, some of the people working that team just have some really fantastic ideas. Um, you know, uh, Ken and in particular has been a, is a fantastic game designer. I know he's not really been in that White Wolf space, so I'm sure he's bringing a lot of really cool stuff to the table that we just have a style of design that we are. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to be too role play heavy because my I can already hear my wife's eyes rolling. <laughs> I'm keeping myself busy. <laughs> Uh, and I, um, I haven't, I haven't role played in any system except a White Wolf or Onyx Path system since nineteen ninety three. You just stayed yourself. The what? <laughs> you just stayed <laughs> yourself. Right. <laughs> 
So I, it's not that I haven't wanted to branch out. It's that there's been nobody to play with at all. And the, the one that I can catch everybody with is Vampire most of the time. And I did, I did get a chance to run in Requiem, but I can't get anyone to let me be a player. I haven't been a player in over 15 years. I know that pain. I'm glad because no one else seems to under oh, oh hey we got a we got a good we got game master here let's let's use him no right. no yeah l- luckily uh, in the past several years I've been able to some people have been running stuff for me which is a nice change of pace um, I- even games I've worked on people have run for me recently which is really really nice that almost never happens um, but yeah usually when it's like let's play a game like cool what are you running thanks sure. <laughs> I didn't plan on running anything. What are you running? Right. It, 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 it's like RPG chicken. <laughs> yeah. I did have an actual play up for a while, but I uh, have apparently I have since lost all of the episodes of it. I'm very sad. It was, uh, it was a Requiem. Was it Requiem? Yeah, I think it was a Requiem game. Yeah, there's, a, there's been a whole bunch of um, World Darkness and Omics Path uh, uh, podcast actually has coming out recently. Um, in fact, there was a Facebook group I was a part of for a while that was basically just nothing but that people noting them. So there's been um, you know, like people that cycle through. There's one that's been a long running just punch of the vigil game. Um, there's one that's uh, actually they do uh, narrative readings of different bits of fiction from both World Darkness and Chronicles Darkness. Um, so there's a it's interesting to see that a lot more of them have been kind of happening in the past few years in particular. Well, may, mayhaps I need to be uh, looking a little harder because I, I, I've been following Knights of the Night. They yep. they started out with Hunter the Vigil, but they haven't. The guy that was running it, I I don't know what his life event is going on, but he's had some issue for the last year, and mm-hmm. he hasn't had a chance to run it. They they rotate games anyway, but um yeah, they just haven't gone back to Hunter at, at any point. I do want to say for the viewer, if you go to this address right here, tlk.io slash the greatest show, we do have a chat room open. I see how many viewers. I don't know if anybody else does. I don't think anybody else does. <laughs> Happens. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, uh, are, you, are you a fan of anything other than Doctor Who? Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> um, lots of things. Like today, actually, I, I went into kind of a, a, a side rant slash nerd about um, Sherlock Holmes. I've always been a long time huge Sherlock Holmes fan, and uh, I, I, Sherlock Holmes fandom is always fun because there's so many subdivisions and sub subdivisions. It, it, it's it's a mess of how far you want to drill down. Uh, in fact, like today, I was. Uh, Digging into um, uh, how to explain this. Uh, so there's the Sherlock Holmes canon, the, the, the original stories that are the uh, Then there's what are called uh, pastiches, which are basically these are stories that are written in the style of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Um, and then uh, about 50 ish years ago, um, there was a guy named August Derleth who wrote a homage slash sequel series called Solar Ponds which was set in the 20s, but Sherlock Holmes was part of that universe. And he got permission to do it, and he wrote like, uh, like about 50, 60 short stories with Solar Ponds. And it's gotten so popular that there, you know, there, there's, there's separate fandoms just for Solar Ponds. And now he 
hired somebody somebody else has now licensed solar ponds from him and started writing additional stories so there's like this this, this, this chain of, uh, it goes all the way down but it's still ultimately it is a kind of spur of the sherlock holmes fandom so it's it's like punk where if you get more than four people in a punk band together in a room they immediately break off and become two subgenres so <laughs> <laughs> So like, no, we're, we're, we're neo-Germanic punk. No, we're <laughs> oi, but derived through yeah. I mean, it's 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 bonkers. So do you do you like watch? I, I my wife and I watch Sherlock, the mm -hmm. English version. Um, do you watch any of the others? I, I I genuinely like Elementary, although I'm about a season and a half behind. Um, I think Elementary is better than most people give it credit for. Um, both as a Sherlock Holmes show and as just, you know, a, a, a procedural show. Um, it, it's genuinely pretty good. Um, I have not watched the new Japanese version, Miss Sherlock, uh, that just came out on HBO. Uh, it's an HBO Asian. I think we're getting it soon. Um, but I've been hearing good things about that. Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. I, I've not heard about that. That yeah, that'll be interesting. Seriously, I mean, I, 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 I mean, it's it's nerd all the way down. I can go into really obscure portions of this, but um, basically, uh, there there's now a whole subgenre of modern day Sherlock Holmes. Um, there's there's two, you know, Elementary. There's Sherlock. Uh, there's um, the one in Japan, Miss Sherlock. There's another one in uh, I want to say Korea, um, which name escapes me at the moment. I, I must admit. Um, you know, there, and there's like at least four or five different, uh, prose versions of modern day Sherlock. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's an entire genre in and of itself of just Sherlock in modern day. It's, it's again, ludicrous. And then as I'm going into stuff like Sherlock Holmes in the future, like Sherlock Holmes, in the 22nd century, which was a cartoon show in the nineties. And <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, it's every, every time I think I know I have a handle on all the Sherlock Holmes things, then it gets, gets weirder. Although, I mean, Rob, it's this podcast though. Um, have you guys played, uh, consulting detective? No, no. really. Um, there are, it's, it's, uh, actually space scalpers. Um, oh, it's called Sherlock Holmes consulting detective. There are actually three different box sets, but they're all, in, it, independent. You can play each of them. You don't need like, a core set or anything. Um, and the basic concept is that um, you're playing Sherlock Holmes. You're playing the um, his subordinates, assistants. Um, and and so you get a case. So you get a case book. Um, and actually, let me. I said they have a box set here again. This would be great for the audio only people, but I will going to show you the components. So there's basically each one comes with a, a, a separate case book. Um, and inside the case book, there are basically different uh, paragraphs that you can read, um, kind of like a choose your own adventure. Each one's kind of labeled and numbered. And then uh, there's a map that you have that comes with this huge, beautiful, beautiful map of London. Wow. Um, and each area has a number associated with it. So if you say, I want to go to the scene of the crime, and the scene of the crime is, you know, uh, in the, the, the northwest corner of the city at 35 you know, something like you go to 35 Northwest and read that section. Um, and then there's like a directory of all the people in London. So you can look up people's addresses. There are newspapers in here so you can read the newspapers. 
and get information about the cases that you're following. Um, and, and so basically, is you just kind of you go around asking, reading all the sections in whatever order makes sense to you. And so you think you have enough information. And then you go to Sherlock with your information. And he's already solved it, of course, because it's Sherlock Holmes. Um, and so what happens is for each question you get right, you get a certain number of points. And then if you do it in – if you have to go to more places than Sherlock had to, you lose points for each additional place you go to. So you're trying to get as much information as possible, as few moves as possible to get the highest score. Hmm. But it's completely cooperative. You can play with by yourself. You can play with up to eight, nine people. Um, it's about two hours to go through a case, I've found. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's kind of like half LARP, half role-playing, half board game. That's three halves, but <laughs> I mean, I'm a game designer. I'll do math. Um, half man, half bear, half pig. I know what exactly. you're talking about. Like bear hands with actual bears. Um, no. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's it's aside from being a Sherlock Holmes game, um, it's also genuinely an interesting game design uh, in the sense that it, it's it's been around for about 30-plus years. It, the first ver English version came out in 1981. So it's been around for like 30 years. So it's, it's an early cooperative game. Um, but there's no randomizers. There's no cards. It's just you, you. You try to use all the information in your hand to make guesses. Sometimes you have to make leaps of logic. Like for example, there's one uh, case where um, you have a woman's. Uh, uh, you, you know her maiden name, and you're trying to find information about her family, but you don't know anything else about her family. So you have to literally go through the directory and find all the people with that last name and knock on all their doors. Until you find someone who's a member of her family. Wow. Yeah. There's like times where, I, you know, this person, it took me 15 minutes to get from this location, this location. So you actually measure out on the map and there's a time scale to figure out how long it takes them to get across town if their alibi holds up or not. It's genuinely so this, clever. This definitely sounds like something that we would be interested in. Um, especially considering I'm addicted to escape rooms. And oh, yeah. DJ, um, what what's that thing you got me? Where what company is it from I, for my birthday? I got birthday? her a mysterious package company scenario to go through. We oh, we nice. enjoyed the hell out of it, and and that is right up. I mean, I saw the joy in her face as you were explaining it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, it's the, the 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 newer versions have slightly higher production values, and, and the props are not as ornate as those because. But the flip side is, each box comes with ten cases, so it's basically it has to have stuff that goes across all this, and then there's three boxes um and the the core set is basically just 10 unconnected cases but there's clever things like each one's in sequential order in chronological order so each of the newspapers there's stuff in you kick all the newspapers from the first early day to the day of your case sometimes there's stuff in earlier newspapers that relate to the case you're currently playing um and then for the two Recent ones, uh, there's a Jack the Ripper one, which actually has a four-day case. So you actually play the first day, get a certain amount of information, and then if you have the right information, you could then start day two. Um, it gives you a new murder and a new uh, uh, book. And then the um, Queen's Park one that just came out has a similar four-day one, but all, that one has additional difficulty of you only have so many turns before the day ends. You only have so many hours. So basically, like you have, I think it's like twelve turns. You can get max you can go through. Then you have to stop. Um, so each one gets a little harder, um, but but they're just genuinely, again, I, I I find them to be very enjoyable, and it's something I found 
through my Sherlock Holmes fandom as those to through my game design work, but it's been something that's been very inspirational to me for the past 20 years since I've had copies of them. Have you played those games alone in addition to with groups of people? Have you yes, tried them both, both ways? Okay. I've done both. Um, playing alone, um, it really comes down to uh, when I played with people, it's great because you can talk and, and bounce ideas around. Uh -huh. um, uh, the, the flip side is basically how it works is um, one person decides where the group's going to go and then when they read off the thing and then it, the next person decides where they want to go. So sometimes you're like, no, we really need to go. Oh. Just got some new piece of information. It's like, yeah, well, it's not my turn to go now and they want to go somewhere else. Um, okay. And so, so the so the downside of working with people is the okay. You don't always have control of where you go. Whereas solo play, you can do it all mm -hmm. yourself. Um, uh, but even when I played solo, it's again only about a couple of hours, um, depending on how fast you read. Uh, the only caveat uh, I would say is that these games were originally written in French, uh, and the new games don't have a license to the original English translation. They had to retranslate the material. Um, and some of the translations are not done to the level of quality I would expect. Uh, <laughs> okay. So occasionally there's just a bit like, what is that word? Or the sentence phrasing that sometimes makes it a little harder to figure out what's being said. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's an extremely minor quibble. You know, <laughs> I mean, otherwise it's a huge box full of text. I mean, so there's, there's actually going to be like typos, and, you know, a couple of errors here and there. But it's, 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 it's again, a really, really strong game. So do you speak any other languages since you've been to Europe? No. Um, uh, I only speak English. The, uh, the trip to Ireland was um, – back. Uh, my mom was originally born in England, but she was born in a U.S. Air Force base. Uh, so she has dual citizenship, uh, British and uh, American citizenship. Uh, so um, all my life I've lived in the U.S. In fact, I was originally born in Ohio. I now live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, then uh, my wife got a job in Dublin, Ireland, early last year, and so originally moved there for her job. Uh, and again, Ireland's largely English speaking. There's uh, a lot of people who speak Irish as well, but it's not as prominent as English speakers. Um, so uh, we were in the process of thinking about learning Irish because we were living there, and then for financial reasons, we ended up having to move back because, without going into the, the politics of it, ultimately, um, rents are rapidly increasing in ireland um and it's getting harder to to find a good place to live there you know, make make your dollar stretch or your uh, euro stretch as far as it needs to um so we just couldn't make the the financial part of it work which i moved back so i only lived there for like six months i haven't lived in europe all that long okay well because i that why well, i ask because i i deliver to a lot of vietnamese people so i started le learning vietnamese oh cool I, I, I know enough to have a very, very simple conversation. <laughs> but I have um, I have two businesses that I converse with on a daily basis in Vietnamese. And they know that I'm learning, so they can't throw w too many weird things out at me. But we um, today, I, I the, the, the beauty shop lady that I delivered to, who normally never speaks English to me unless there's something I don't understand, um, started out in English and I, and I kind of looked at her and she's like, Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, the other thing I just explained to my wife the other night is that Vietnamese people don't speak quietly. Um, everything is at full volume. 
So every time I'm learning something new, I always want to do the whole English speaking thing. And I want to kind of uh, enunciate it, but be not too loud so that not everybody in the world can hear me. They're like, no, speak up. We, you, everything is at full volume. There's nothing, there's no hiding here. But I mean, that, that, that's, that's the best way to learn is because, um, I mean, if you're doing it every day, then it's much easier than trying to learn out of a book. I mean, so if you have somebody to talk to, even if it's basic, that's a much better way of learning a language. Uh, we had a friend of ours who, um, in Ireland, uh, everyone learns Irish as part of a school curriculum, but a lot of people, especially in the Dublin area, just don't bother after a school. Um, but we had a, a mate of ours who lived there who actually um, was born in what's called a Gale Talk area, where it's predominantly uh, Irish is the predominant language. Um, and so he was a native Irish speaker, and, and that's, Irish was his primary language. And so when we started learning, we were planning to work with him, to kind of talk with him every day, just to kind of, again, have that regular exposure to it. Um, and also like the signs and the like are also uh, both languages. So that would have also been helpful to again, be immersed in it. Now that we're not there, it's like, it's much harder to find people to talk to and, and to engage with. So it's, it's hard to learn if you're not constantly using it. So there's not, not a lot of Irish speaking people in Atlanta, Georgia. No, no. <laughs> That's is, so weird. Is I, Irish I to stop calling it Gaelic. <laughs> That's what's going to be my question is, um, is, is, is it like branched off of Gaelic or? I mean, yeah, G G Gaelic, uh, as I understand it, uh, Gaelic is the kind of, of, of group language. Um, and then there's uh, uh, Scots Gaelic and Irish. And so we, if you say just Gaelic without context, some, it's, it's, it's well, I understand it's generally assumed that you're talking about Scots Gaelic. Um, uh, and I believe I believe they, they still call Scott Gaelic the full Scott Gaelic, but I have been I was many times told in Ireland no, it's just Irish. It's like okay, you're done. Um, it, the the equivalent is like calling it Spanish French. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. It's it's a, it's a distinct language, even though there's a similar root. Well, and I asked about the root because like um, like French, German, um, Spanish, Portuguese, they all come from Latin. Right. Yep. So if you know one, you kind of know most of them, but mm -hmm. it's it, it, it is completely different, obviously. So um, I, I haven't I haven't actually talked to anybody who like knows one and goes to the area to try to use a language. Um, but from what limited research I've done, it does seem like it, it's similar. Like you might get certain words, certain inflections, certain conjugations might be roughly similar. Um, but it, yeah, it is a distinct language from what I've I've heard. I, I got taught at a business that I worked with by someone who was, uh, he was a Spanish speaker. He, he was from Spain. But every time we had questions about businesses, we were looking up because that's part of what we had to do. Um, if it was in Portuguese or Italian or um, French, he could almost tell us word for word what the thing said without having a, you know, run it through a translator or anything. So right. he, 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 he only knew Spanish. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it's, it's um, and, and, I mean uh, again, I, I, I'm not a linguistic, but I mean from what I understand, it's somewhat to like when you're when you're um, looking at like a, a South Africa English or British English or even Irish English, for that matter, um, where certain words are, and, and uh, colloquialisms are maybe like, what does that mean? Especially when you get more familiar and more um, away from standards. You know, it's like your slang and, and, and lexicon, uh, then it gets harder to understand. But, they, you know, simple sentences, it's pretty easy to understand 
no matter which part of the world you're getting your English from, it's, it's, I, I understand it's akin to that in the sense that it's, I recognize bits and pieces of that. I recognize how that should be going. The structure might be a bit off, but I you know, generally understand what's going on. Um, but again, this is all just kind of anecdotal secondhand chatting with, with mates in the pub about how this works. And they're going, we think it's like this. I'm trying to use more English colloquialisms like that too, like mates and pubs. And, and I don't pronounce the crazy words like controversy or, uh, Aluminium. You, but, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to use like, uh, I, I've called people nutter a lot and, mm -hmm. and people look at me funny, but I'm like, uh, <laughs> because yeah. of the doctor who thing, but yeah. Ace. Oh yes. Ace. Yeah. And that yes, was interesting. Um, pineapple. Do you want it? Yes. <laughs> um, what, what's interesting is, is when, when I did go to Ireland, I, I you know, similarly, it's like I, my mom, my, uh, my mom, I grew up, you know, around a certain amount of British slang, um, watched a lot of, of British television. So I was like, I'm ready for this. Thank God to Ireland. It's completely different. Um, so when it came back, a lot of my, over the, you know, over, I've been back for about seven months now. Um, and most of the, the slang and, and accents has fallen away. I, did, I apparently picked up a very slight accent, which is now gone. Um, but uh, the two things that still stuck with me weirdly are cheers instead of saying goodbye. I, I still say cheers. Um, and also, uh, uh, thanks a million is very popular in the part of Ireland that I lived in. It, it's, it's, everything was thanks a million. It's like, oh, God, thanks a million. You know? um, and so I, it's just things I, I, I picked up, you know. Uh, also, um, uh, in Ireland, it's, it's kind of hard. You can't, you don't just say goodbye. It's always cheers, thanks, yeah, thanks, okay, cheers, goodbye, okay, yeah, well, yeah, yeah I'm not that good, okay, cheers, bye, bye. I mean, it's always like a, a sequence you have to go through for it to finally the conversation. Okay. Oh, I, I, so my wife and I are both from the same small Midwestern North Dakota town. Mm -hmm. um, I've been told I have no Midwestern accent whatsoever, and what I attributed that to mm -hmm. is that every time I role play a, an ethnic background i use that accent as close as possible without being offensive mm -hmm. so uh like for instance um in the navy there was a an irish guy uh, he'd come over to this country and apparently the provision that he was using to get his green card was he served he had to serve in the military so okay. he's from dublin mm -hmm. um and one day i walked up to him like can i follow you around all day he's like <laughs> okay and I was following around for a couple of hours before he turned and asked me, what exactly are you after? And I explained to him and he's like, okay. He had a very standard generic Dublin accent, but he could do all of the dialects. And I'm like, that's the one I want. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I learned really quickly is, is like the Dublin is kind of the, uh, um, what in England's called, uh, RP, French Nation or the BBC accent. It's kind of the one that when you turn on the TV, People are probably talking, generally speaking, the Dublin accent. Um, so you hear, you know, that, and it's, it's, to our ears, probably the lightest, the little easier to parse. And then you get like the further west and the further north, then it gets a little muddier. And, and uh, the Cork accent in particular, I had some problems with. And I was just like, I, I, I think I know what you're saying, <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I learned things like uh, you, you drop the TH, so it's a 33 and a third, you know, as opposed to 33 and a third. That was the hardest thing to. I, in fact, I still have issues with it. I still want to use the or the yeah. th sound instead of the. But I know that's that because I listen to. So I'm a soccer fan, 
-hmm. And for a while, I was listening to the Northern Ireland Soccer League show, and that's I, that's where I caught on to the. They're not pronouncing the th in anything, so I started mm -hmm. trying to pick up on that. But I mean, so <laughs> I, I I caught that after I started listening to that podcast. But I mean, the whole dialect thing—it's like uh, I I I watch enough. English soccer that I can tell what part of London you're from by your accent. Wow. So anyone that well, I, and sometimes I'm real close with like, Oh, you're, you're just one little area over. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm at the point where I can tell like rough quadrants. Like I could tell, uh, uh, basically I could tell Belfast from Dublin, from uh, Galway and kind of the rough quadrants. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm okay at that beyond that. It's like, it's definitely Irish, um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, it's, 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 again, it was, it was really interesting because especially living there because we were the people with the charming accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. Uh, you, and we had people like, going, could, could you just like, just keep talking to me? It's like, going, wait, what? I don't have, <laughs> my accent's terrible. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm in the Midwest. I'm basically two steps away from y'all. <laughs> <Just, laughs> no, it's wonderful. It's like, all right, all right. You While you were there, where did you travel to? Um, I actually didn't get to travel too much while we lived there. Um, uh, I, I, I went to a Dragon Meet in London for a con. Um, I, we went to uh, Galway uh, for a weekend. Um, we went through Cork, but mostly, most of the time we were in, we actually lived in a town called Manute, uh, it's, well, Maynooth is how you pronounce it in America, but Maynooth is how it got pronounced there. Um, and that was about 45 minutes west of Dublin. Um, and that was like a, basically a college town. It was, they had a university there that's been there for longer than we've had a country. Um, and a church that's been there longer than, you know, we've had a country um, next to like the Tesco, which is a supermarket. It's, but, um, you know, we get on the train and go into Dublin. You know, my wife took train every day back and forth. And then over the weekend, we'd go into Dublin and just go around. So we spent a lot of time mostly in Dublin, a little bit around Dublin. Um, uh, but we just never, we weren't quite there long enough. And she just really settle in that you start properly traveling, sadly. It's, I think it's the situation where you, you have enough close to you to look at for that six months that you don't go really, you, you don't go outside the area a whole lot. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the, okay. You know, while we're settling in, let's explore the area we're living in and get to know that mm -hmm. and then slowly make our way out to, like I said, um, uh, we went to Galway kind of as a three day, you know, let's get the, the heck away from the house for a weekend's trip. Um, uh, and then we have plans like, you know, oh, well, yeah, we we'll go to see, you know, we, we've been to England several times uh, and been to the UK several times, but, you know, we were planning to go see Belfast and then eventually, you know, um, maybe go back to Scotland again and then, possibly for the rest of Europe. But again, it, it, it's, it's easy to get a plane or a uh, boat or a train to mainland Europe, but it was just enough inconvenience that wasn't quite worth our time. And sadly, we had to go before we could avoid take advantage of it. I do regret that. That's Any probably. plans on going back, like to visit or... Oh yeah, I'll, I'll probably go back uh, to visit. Um, uh, in fact, uh, my roommate's going back to Dublin next week for business, and I, I can't go. And she's like, "Oh, I want to go with you, but you know, just can't make it work." Um, but um, I know I'm definitely thinking uh, from a convention standpoint. Um, I want to try to see if we can get like a UK Game Expo next year. Um, 
Uh, there's a uh, Dublin game video game conference that's been picking up in recent years that I may try to hit next year um, because there's been a, a steady increase in the Dublin video game scene, which is the other part of my career is I do video game writing. Um, and also, I mean, I've had some invites to uh, you know, like Germany and uh, France. Uh, I had one invite to Italy. So, I mean, like as finances make sense and as things work out, I definitely want to try to go do if I could do it like in conjunction with business, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll go for a con, then take a few extra days on either side, you know, kind of spend some time there, kind of work things out like that. I'm definitely hoping to do that. And my wife and I have been talking about going back there for a trip once, you know, we settle back here in the U.S. So, I mean, I, I think we'll always have an appreciation of part of us that, that likes being in Europe uh, and likes having been in Europe. So, I mean, uh, it will never fall out of our lives, but it's just, right now it's like, you know, the, the, again, you, you pick it, pack it, sell everything off, pack everything up, move, and then do it again six months later. It's like, I'm kind of done with travel for a bit. Yeah. No. How is the gaming culture over in Ireland? I'm sorry? How is the gaming culture over in Ireland? Um, really, really good, but um, from an American standard, it, it, it's, it's a bit small. Um, the, one of their bigger conventions, ScaleCon in Dublin, uh, got a few hundred people, and that's reasonably sized for uh, an Irish con. Um, but that being said, there's like a, a, a decent con every two months there. Um, I mean, but in the time I was there, uh, I went to one con, and I had the opportunity to go to two more. I just didn't have a chance that you go to them. Uh, but I did go to GaleCon and spend some time there. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, I'll travel to Cork and game with my Cork friends. And then three months later, they'll travel to come see me in Dublin. And then we'll, you know, you know game in there. And then all of us will go to Galway later. And then all of us go to Belfast. And, um, and there's a lot of also, obviously, because it's cheap flights, you know, between the, the, the UK gaming scene and, and the Irish gaming scene. Um, uh, not just across the Belfast border, but also between the islands as well. Um, so, I mean, it's it's definitely uh, very intimate. You know lots of people, um, which, of course, being gamers is both good and bad. Because, um, you know, everyone's personally invested. Uh, the one thing I noticed that was interesting to me in particular <clears throat> is I'm used to American conventions where when you there's games there, especially tabletop games. Um, there's pre-reg. Usually you sign up, you get tickets or whatever, and then you go to the game. Uh, and at the Irish cons, it's much more you show up on the day and wow. you grab a table. Um, so there's a lot more of a pickup culture and also a lot more people who would just show up on the day to run games too. Uh, um, they usually program, but there's also like people just slap a sign-up sheet down and go, oh, I'm going to run Ghostbusters now. It's like, all right, cool. Let's play Ghostbusters, you know, or whatever. Is that because of the smaller attendance? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, I know that it's equivalent in uh, the English gaming scene, at least, because when I went to Dragon Meet, I saw something similar, and I was like, is this European, or is this specific to this kind of area? Um, and and uh, my friends Matthew Dawkins, kind of explained to me that um, it, some of it is the size, um, because the, the really big UK conventions, they do have some form of pre-reg. Um, right. But the smaller ones is kind of much more show up on the day. Um, but also, uh, I, I, if I had to guess, I'd say some of it is um, my limited exposure was that uh, the European gaming scene seems a little more experimental, not in, well, 
in applying things, but also just more, hey, I got this new game off a shelf. Do you want to try it kind of thing? Um, also, uh, definitely stronger in the sense of horror games are much more prevalent. So naturally, World Darkness, um, but also lots of Call of Cthulhu uh, and the like. Um, and uh, they also have a lot more, at least at Gale Con at Dragon Meat, uh, kind of there are open table spaces where you can, uh, you can just kind of show up with a game and sit down and play. Um, I've seen more of that in U.S. conventions in the past few years. Kind of like you know, check out a board game and play it in a kind of board game space. Um, uh, but I, I did see a lot of that. Apparently, that sets pretty common, from what I understand, in at least the Irish gaming scene, where just like you know, hey, just you know, bring up stack of games with you. Also, swaps. That's the other thing I found in Irish gaming culture is, um, I just got into a Facebook group uh, for the GaleCon, and people just started saying, "I have this for sale, and I have this for sale, for sale," and I was asking about it and apparently it's a really big thing was where because rather than putting it into the post uh, uh because on post is not great sometimes um so what they'll do is hey we're all coming to one space anyway and we all know each other anyway so they'll just sell or trade games ahead of time and then show up with the games that are in bought or sold watch push the games around switch money around and then take another stack of games back so a lot more of that we have um the Portland Retro Gaming Expo out mm -hmm. here, and I I volunteer for all of the cons, and so I don't get to see a lot. I guess I mean I'm there the whole time, but I don't necessarily get to see a lot of what's going on. And I know that with retro gaming specifically, there are definitely large groups of swaps and and really? selling of of games like cartridge games you know like nintendos of of all kinds and segas and everything and then they have um there's a a place here called um ground control with uh pinball machines and oh, wow um, what, what do you call those games the cabinet or Cab you know, cabinet the, the stand-up cabinet game. right okay okay yeah, so they bring all of their games and they set it up as free play. And you've got this gigantic area where you just pay to get in, basically. And all the games are free play. And there's old, um, a bunch of people bring in Ataris. Oh, and wow. um, they, have, they have these cute little setups all over that look like these, you know, 70s basements with a shag rug and you know a big console tv and and all of this stuff set up they do um they do tetris um contests they they like they put it on the wall they put the games on the wall and you can watch them from pretty much anywhere and they have all of these tournaments and everything and um a lot of people apparently um, and I don't know anything about this stuff either, but I guess you can program these older games easily or put a game into the cartridge easily. I guess I'm yeah. not sure exactly uh, what it is, but yeah, okay, flashcards. So yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, actually, so, um, uh, it's it's, it's I, I know a little bit about this from the the, the video game side, but there's an entire. Um, subgroup of not only that will they um, make their own games and put them onto cartridges so that you can use them, but also there's uh, what they call ROM hacking, where they will take older games and rewrite them. 
Okay. Um, uh, and uh, so Nintendo games in particular apparently are pretty easy to rewrite. There's a lot of Nintendo era games. And so people will take a game, download the data, rewrite it, and put it back onto a different cartridge and use that. It's, it's fascinating okay. to me. Yeah. So, and then they have a lot of people that, that have their own games that they're demoing um, their, you know, prog- that they've programmed and they have booths and stuff and they have, uh, they have a lot of speakers um, and they have a lot of YouTube celebrities that mm. I'm clueless about. Right. I keep hearing about peanut butter gamer and I'm <laughs> totally lost. Um but anyways, I guess these these people that those appeal to the younger crowd of people that come to these uh, to the retro gaming expo. The YouTube people are there for like the I don't know, probably you know up to like fifteen year olds maybe. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, they have um, people who used to work for Atari come and uh, you know and do panels every year also and. Um, so that's uh that's a lot of fun. That happens in September, I'm pretty sure. Um, oh wow! And it's a three three day event, well two and a half day event, and the free play you know stays open like till midnight, and people can come in. And I want to say like a day is maybe ten bucks. I mean for especially for the short night, for the first night and. Um, yeah, they just have tons and tons and tons of gaming and all these panels. I mean, they they have thousands and thousands of people that come to these things. So when you when you mention these smaller conventions with hundreds, you know, I can imagine that's that's why it's a lot easier to kind of figure it out when you get there versus right. having to have everything completely set up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm used to. Well, I mean, I've been to cons of all size, but I mean, every year I'm going to conventions like Gen Con, which is like hundreds of thousands of people, you know, every year for tabletop and role-playing games. Um, and so it's like, you, you don't go in there without a plan <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know? And so like, and the, the very, when, when for GeoCon the very first time, it was like, you know, uh, somebody was like, oh, hey, you know, you're in town. You want to come? It's like, yeah, sure. And then, like, no information, no information. And, like, the website with events didn't go up to, like, three weeks before. And I was just like, what is going on? And I thought, well, this con's really slow. And then I probably bet that's like, no, they're on top of it by having stuff up three weeks ahead of yeah. time. And it's just like, again, just a completely different cultural thing. But it, make, it makes sense. I mean, if everyone kind of knows everybody, then you kind of go, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna go there. I'm probably going to hang out with this group of six people. Like, when I was at uh, Dragon Meet, we um, – uh, apparently, this is fairly common too. Uh, uh, the group uh, rented a, an apartment. Those apartments kind of just could rent out. It, it's a more formal version of something like, um, uh, uh, like yeah, Airbnb is Airbnb. what I was going to say too. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, um, basically it, 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 it's it's a little more organized and structured than that, but basically it's the same concept. Um, and so again, apartments like the walking distance. So we go to the show, we hang out there for a few hours, um, and then like four or five of us all rented a place to sleep. And then we just went back to that place and gamed there all day. Um, and I was like, shouldn't we go to the show? And it's like, oh, that's actually pretty common because m- the space isn't always available. And so they'll just, people meet up at the show, hang out, look at the booths, whatever, figure out games they want to play, play a couple games, and then go back and play offsite for several hours at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing. It's like, it get very ad hoc. It, it's the, the convention is kind of the excuse to get together and play oh, the games. Okay. 
I know that there's a lot like I, I can think of um, Kamora Khan especially um, and I think oh I think the other one that I do on what's the other one coming up Rose City Comic Con they usually have board game sections mm-hmm. set up and, and a bunch of tables and everything I, too and they're I do usually want to ask since cool. we don't have a tabletop role-playing game convention in Portland what's the crossover like for other media other than tabletop RPGs or is that it at an RPG con? Oh God, no. Um, most, I actually can't think of very many pure RPG cons. There's usually something else. Um, so like it, it kind of depends. Like Dick Gen Con is, has traditionally been a tabletop role playing game, but even then it kind of started as a miniatures convention because that's where D and D evolved from. Um, and even now there's like massive card game tournaments. There's a, a just several huge board game rooms, several board game vendors that show up there. Video games are starting to show up at Gen Con. Um, uh, PAX is starting to start off as a video game convention, but starting to expand into fact, Now PAX Unplugged is a largely tabletop convention, um, but still has some video game presence from what I understand. Uh, so, I mean, finding a show that's just role-playing games is actually not easy, and most of those are pretty small. Um, there's one in uh, in Atlanta here called AndoCon, which is almost entirely pure RPG. Uh, but again, it's like a few hundred people show up, then it's a relatively new convention. Um, so there's a, there's a ton of crossover, uh, and, and, I, and I think that's actually to the benefit of all sides. Um because, like, you know, it, 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 role-playing games are an investment. I mean, you go to a show, uh, and most times you're sitting there for three to four hours playing just one game. And, you know, especially as, as many of us get older, um, committing to several chunks of that gets harder and harder. Um, so having things that are different timescales allows for some flexibility. So, like, you know, okay, we're going to play... You know, Vampire the Requiem for four hours, then we're going to have lunch, then we'll play a board game for a couple hours, and then in the evening we'll play Break the Oblivion, and then we'll go to bed or go drinking or whatever. Um, and, and that seems pretty common. Um, and, and also pickup games are not uh, unusual. But again, most like like uh, when I went to Gen Con, I was going to game with a bunch of friends of mine. A couple people fell through, so I ended up playing uh, card games instead of of tabletop role-playing game because those were available and it was a nice villain. So, I mean, there is a ton of, of crossover. Okay. Um, I, like I said, I mean, I, we, we've we never been to a con before. Uh, Wiz- Wizard World was the first one or R- Rose City? Yeah, it would have been Wizard World because that was in, it, at that time, it was in April. No, sorry. No, we did go to Rose City Comic Con. So yeah, so Comic Cons are what we what what is what I have the experience of. I have gone to things she's um, uh, volunteered at, but I think like the Kimura Con is a uh, anime, and I just I'm not into the things that those people are into. Right, but I mean, it, it, gaming is much like how uh, uh, gaming and tabletop games have grown to expand other media. I'm seeing the reverse. Um, uh, Again, in Atlanta, there's a, a, a big anime convention called MomoCon, um, and it's predominantly anime, but it has started to slowly grow uh, uh, a tabletop track, and a video game track, and an RPG track. Um, they're not huge. Uh, you know, for Again, it's a 10,000-ish person convention off the top of my head, um, and so there's only like maybe a 
50 or 100 people playing tabletop role-playing games, but they are there. Um, I went to Fan Expo in Canada a couple of years ago, um, and that's Comic-Con-ish. Uh, it's celebrities, it's panels predominantly. Um, but again, they had a decent RPG track and tabletop board game track. Uh, so, I mean, more of that is happening um, and, and more are people are coming to, because, because again, it, it's um, becoming crossover, particularly now with things like Critical Role, where there are people who are engaging in uh, tabletop games in the same way that they engage with things like Doctor Who or anime or whatever. They're watching it on a screen. Um, and so there's a lot more sense of, okay, this makes sense to overlap is to you know sell these books that people are watching the game of on the screen and the like, um, or get people together to get a sense of what it's like to play the thing that they have been watching in the same way that what's it like to wear a costume of the character like on screen. There's there's increasing amount of overlap as the lines just get blurrier, which is something I personally find fascinating. I, I think it's great that this stuff's getting blurrier and muddier and people have more chances to experience different things because um, sometimes when conventions are heavily siloed, um, that's when things get toxic in my experience. And it's like, you know, we are just this group and we don't talk about anything else. <clears throat> we'll be back to Sherlock Holmes, for example. Uh, there's been a con here called 221B Con, which started a few years ago. I went to the first one um, and it was just Sherlock Holmes convention. That's all they did. Uh, the company that put it together has put together a series of fandom conventions, but this is the first Sherlock Holmes one I did. But even that was fascinating because you have people who are extremely young, uh, a largely uh, inclusive LGBTQ community, and they're there for BBC Sherlock, they're there for uh, elementary, the extremely new young versions of the show. And then people in their 60s and 70s are showing up because they prefer the classic canon and they want to talk about uh, how the original material is presented, you know, uh, people like uh, the Baker Street Regulars, um, and putting them in the same space and watching them going, we love this one thing in common. We're coming at it from such different angles, but they got to appreciate the other side. Um, I did a talk at that one. And she was talking about uh, the original canon in the context of, of things like elementary and, and uh, Sherlock. And basically it was the, let me explain all the inside jokes to you kind of panel. Uh, you know, when they're doing this stuff, here's stuff in, in the original stories they're referencing. Um, and so people who had never read the original books are like, oh my God, I got to find these now. And say, well, they're free. They're in public domain. Go, go find them. Um, uh, and leads to fascinating conversations like someone getting mad at me because I spoiled the ending of a story I was published 125 years ago. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the spoiler statute of limitations has expired on this one. By like 75 years, yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> even the most liberal interpretation of spoiler warning, it's like, no, we're too far gone. Um, but again, I mean, that was within a fandom. But basically, it was it was a, a understood fandom, but it's actually much more bifurcated and diverse than even I think the people at the show realize. And I'm seeing the same thing at gaming conventions is because gaming is such now an all inclusive term means so many different things. You know, it's like uh, someone playing um, a a you know retro Nintendo cartridges when they weren't even around when Nintendo was a thing. You know, being in the same space as people who are playing playing war games since the 60s when Avalon Hill was a big thing in the same space as people who play live action games and dress up in costumes and, you know, that weird section they have with cosplay, you know, having them all in the same space and going, hey, your thing is cool too, I think really helps everybody. So I'm a huge fan of, of, of conventions that take multiple options and kind of put them in the same space and go check new things out. 
you know, live outside your zone because I think that helps all of our communities when that happens. Well, um, we didn't, North Dakota doesn't have cons. I know that'll shock you. Um, <laughs> so like DJ said, our first, our first ever has been since we've lived in Portland and um, I'm not like I volunteer, I volunteer a lot out here, I guess. And so I volunteer for stuff that I may not have any interest in. Mm -hmm. um, so like uh, for KimuraCon, for example, it was something I didn't know anything about, but I enjoy volunteering. And, you know, so I, I did that. And I've, I think I've been there for two or three years now. And, um, you know, so I get to know a little bit more of it, or there's like every year, I, I recognize maybe one more character than the year before. Um, like I got to come home and, and tell uh, DJ that one of the Voltron people, like, I, I recognized them at the show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was so proud of myself. But but I, I do that. And like like I said, the Retro Gaming Expo out here is a lot of fun. There's um, several Comic-Cons. There's uh, Heroes and Villains Fan Fest, which is um, Walking Dead and like the CW mm -hmm. hero shows. Like um, Oh, and the one thing I wanted to ask you about since you uh, artwork. Mm -hmm. here in in atlanta georgia is one of our favorite artists is andy runton okay and he is uh from georgia okay and he came up to portland at that first con that we ever went to and unfortunately he's never come back but <laughs> we um we met him there and he was a really nice guy and um and then at he he draws a a series called Owly okay. and it's really just artwork there's no dialogue to it you just figure out the dialogue based on on what he draws and um at, so then at Retro Gaming Expo I was helping this couple get into a panel after it had started and I noticed on the guy's arm he had an Owly tattoo and and I go oh my god it's an Owly tattoo and he goes Oh my God! You know who Owly is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was one of those, you know, instant connection type situations that that you get. Yeah, from, right. those, those are always cool, especially. I mean, yep. I, I will say that um, I don't know the artist in question, sadly, but um, yeah. I, I do know how cool it can be to find someone who, you know, really connects with with what you're working on. You know, um, I, I've had people give tattoos uh, of, of icons or groups that I've, I've worked on or helped to design uh, at least the, the fiction behind. Um, and it's always like, you, you put that on your body and I've worked on that. Forever. That's weird. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's cool, but also a little strange because it's like uh -huh. that was in my head and now it's on you. <laughs> yeah. So is, I've been thinking while I've been waiting. Um, <laughs> is Scion owned by Onyx Path? Yes. Okay. So actually, if you want to, I can break down kind of how it all works. Um, uh, so currently, the World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness, and Exalted are all licensed from White Wolf. Um, those are, uh, there were, from what I understand, there are other properties that they have acquired, but I don't know the details on, on what they are. I knew that those three, they do own. 
Onyx Path licenses from them to make tabletop role-playing games. Um, uh, when Onyx Path was formed, uh, it, it purchased outright um, Scion and the Trinity Continuum, which includes uh, Aeon, Aberrant, and Adventure. Um, and then they, they, along with another company, uh, jointly purchased the Scarlands, which were the uh, D&D 3rd edition uh, materials that were put out by White Wolf at the time. Um, the other party, uh, uh, Stuwick, sadly passed away very suddenly last year, um, and so now we now have we we bought the other interest of it, um, and so now we completely own Scarlands as well. Um, then there are games like uh, my game Pugmire, which is actually uh, uh, owned by me, and I have, for lack of a better term, licensed Omics Path to make the tabletop role playing game version of it. We're actually working together, and it's, it's much more muddier in terms of the creative process. Uh, but from, from a legal perspective, it's identical. We, we have licensed that from, uh, uh, they license it from my company, Pugsteady, to make a tabletop game. Um, and we also just uh, uh, finished up a draft of uh, Dystopia Rising, which is licensed from a different company called Eshton Media. Um, they, Dystopia Rising is a uh, um, post-apocalyptic live action group and they wanted to do a new version of their tabletop games. So that's another license agreement. So there's lots of games that Onyx Path are publishing. Some of them are licensed by companies, including White Wolf, the new White Wolf. Uh, some of them are owned outright by Onyx Path and some of them are creator owned that are kind of produced jointly, like the ones that I, like like, so like uh, uh, Pugmire. Um, and just recently um, we started uh, talking about They Came From Beneath the Sea, which is a game that uh, Black Red Term is a new Onyx Path owned property. So Onyx Path now owns this new game that they're making that wasn't previously a White Wolf property. And I know about that game because the role playing game podcast I listened to, a bunch of people went to a con where uh, Matthew was apparently making yes. <laughs> noises a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> he does it all the time. I mean, he can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I asked about Cyan because I wanted to use references here, here that you guys owned so that huh? this work better so do you know have you seen will wheaton's titan's grave uh production for youtube i have not seen i've heard of it but i haven't seen it so it's it was basically a, a they ran it in like two days but stretched it out into 12 episodes they had a writing team behind it they had an artist specifically dedicated to it they had a set all that but the important part is um a good marketing tool would be to recreate that type of thing where you're like running Pugmire for a specific group of four people in a very specific story to kind of introduce people that might be hesitant into this game system and then kind of giving them a little flavor in the world too. Oh, I mean, we would love to do that. Um, the, 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 the course money is a big issue because we don't have Will Wheaton money. We don't have Geek and Tundra money. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's yeah. why I mean, I, that's I, that's why I'm saying, you know, there's no, not going to be a team of writers, it's, but it, it may take place over a longer period and maybe a little bit more off the cuff. But I mean, yeah, that, that's I, the I mean we, we, we are looking at options like that. Like um, uh, we did do uh, Geek and Center did do a uh, four episodes uh, run of Pugmire uh, back when the Kickstarter started. Um, and so I worked with them a little bit to kind of help them out with that. Um, but that was pretty hands-off. I was like, hey, you guys do what you think is awesome. Um, and we are reaching out to other streamers and the like to actually, because we do want people to say, like, hey, you know, we'll 
promote you guys if you run a game of this, you know, people aware of it. Um, so it's definitely a space where we're trying to move into. I mean, we're also trying to do stuff like uh, um, get Roll20 uh, and Fantasy Grounds resources up so people can more easily stream their games if they have, you know, pre-made assets using our properties. Um, so, I mean, we, it's definitely we're trying to explore. Right now we're doing stuff that's within our wheelhouse a bit more. Like uh, we just put out a uh, um, an interactive YouTube uh, series for uh, Pan's Guide to Pugmire. So basically it's like uh, we got audio narration and you can make some choices. You know, it's like, you know, Pan wants to fight the spiders, click here. If you want Pan to do this, click here. And it kind of gives you very simple uh, explanation of the rules. Like here's how dice rolls work. Um, it's not a comprehensive rule set, but it gives you a sense of basics. Um, and it also gives you kind of a rudimentary, choose your adventure style story through all the videos. Uh, so you could play that in like 15 minutes and gives you a, a basic idea of what a tabletop role-playing game might be like. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're looking into to stuff like that. And of course, with the Onyx Pathcast, um, if, if that continues to do well, then, you know, we've talked about things like maybe uh, us getting together, doing a four-hour session, then cutting up into like four one-hour episodes that we could release through a, a podcast stream. So, I mean, we're definitely wanting to, to explore those areas um, and, and stuff like Titan's Grave and, and Critical Role are definitely pointing the way. And I know that um, the new Geek Sundry Alpha stuff, where, again, they have elaborate sets and... Um, people are in costume. I mean, it, it, it's stuff. It's just amazing, fantastic stuff. Um, if we can find the right partner to do stuff like that, we definitely want to explore it. Um, it's just been, you know, when you, I mean, D and D is a huge brand, um, and that's a great place to start. And then something like you know, a Star Trek role playing games out again. That's that's a huge property. So right now, the really big properties are getting a lot of attention, and, and understandably, uh, even Titan's Grave. I mean, that that's still fairly traditional fantasy um even though it's not a DD system it, it uses uh green ronin's uh, age system but still i mean it, it's a fairly traditional fantasy setting so it's going to get a lot more attention just because it's something that people recognize um the stuff that omics path makes is I, I think very very cool but also not as easily summarized um yeah. i mean like how do you how do you summarize um you play a dead person and also somebody else's uh, evil consciousness in their head, you know. It's not a, not a zippy, pitchy, you know, kind of concept to pitch right in the But I mean, so if if we're using like the main, like the white wolfy connected stuff too, like a uh, everybody would kind of be able to to connect with a like a vampire situation if if that was run too. But I just thought that it would be neat to if if Onyx Path used that if they. I mean, the way you presented. You, the 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 answer there made me think, man. I wish I had the money to produce something for you guys because right. that would be awesome. Right. I mean, and that's one thing is that um, uh, tabletop role playing games is not an industry that makes a ton of cash. Um, I mean, the the margins are are better than they were five years ago. Um, I mean, people say how about role playing games dying? In fact, I think they are on an upswing again, particularly in the wake of uh, fifth edition and uh, uh, events like uh, the Geek and Sundry really embracing the role-playing games. But even before that, there was an upswing. Um, but we're still talking, you know, a good sales run on a game is like five or 10,000 copies. Um, whereas, you know, a bad run of comic books would be like 10,000 copies. You know, I mean, we're, so the, the, the scale is just different. I mean, we're selling functionally 
uh, uh, coffee book, coffee art books. You know, so those are 50 bucks a pop. Um, and tabletop role-playing games take a certain amount of investment both to start and to run. You know, you have to spend a lot of time reading them, making characters. You know, it's 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 a, it's it's awesome, but it's also an investment of time. Um, so it's harder to sell as other entertainment becomes more easily accessible. It's one of the reasons why I think uh, watching and listening to actual plays has become backboard because it's like being in the game without all the prep. So if I don't have a grip around or I don't have time, but I still want to kind of feel like I'm involved with the game, you know, I can toss up an episode of Critical Role on YouTube and watch that and, okay, I'm getting a D&D-like experience. Um, so I am definitely with you in the sense that it makes sense for us to kind of move into the area and when it's something, something we're exploring. Um, excuse me. But you have to find people who are the night intersection of technical cap capability, um, uh, able to put together an engaging product and maintain an engaging product, and also interested in the stuff we make. And there's some people who, who fit all those criteria, but you know, it's just kind of getting it all in. On top of all of that, like you say, um, of, of all people who fit all those criteria, most of them, for nostalgic purposes or, or preferences, are going to want to talk about World Darkness or Chronicles Darkness, which is fantastic. We make those games too, but you know, uh, from from a business perspective, obviously, we're going to want to. We also would like to have the stuff that we own or have a direct investment in, in in that line as well. So, it may be a case where we start looking at helping out with a vampire product because that's a very popular strong brand and then okay now we've done that now can we do scion can we do trinity can we do pugmire whatever i was really interested in scion when it came out but it came out at a weird point to where i had a group that immediately dissolved after that <laughs> so i got i got access to some books for a little while but i didn't get access to all of them so i only know little tidbits here and there and that would be the one thing most world of darknessy that i would want to see played out in a in a large scale not that i don't i mean i i love the concept of pugmire but both my wife and i are, i think are really waiting for monarchies of, of mao because well, they're cat people no totally and monarchies of mao just uh the 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 a draft of the pdf went out to kickstarter backers so that's pretty soon um we're, we're not all necessarily cat people i mean after, yeah, after all I have a dog treat business. Well, yeah. But, See? Huh? Okay. You lied to me. You lied to me. I, 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 I was misinformed. But we we own a cat. We yes. don't own a dog. No, 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 no. You're owned by a cat. Yes. Yes, we are her staff. Right. We also, I also serve two guinea pigs. Oh, nice. Um, but, yeah, that the cat one, DJ, I haven't looked that up at all, but I have I have um, that fetch quest okay. up on my iPad, and and so I want to know if you have or had a pug. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in fact, um, we've had three in our lives, um, and technically a fourth. We 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 uh, were a foster for a fourth, so, um, but. Um, uh, in fact, all three of our pugs um, are in the backstory of Pugmire. Um, so the Virgil founder of Pugmire is King Vincent, which is our, our oldest uh, pug. And then, of course, King Puckington was our first dog. And then his uh, brother, which is uh, Seneschal Murrah, um, 
uh, is, is, you know, those are all based off of three pugs that we have owned in the past. Uh, and in fact, um, our last one uh, uh, actually passed away while we were living in Ireland. Um, but we've been talking about uh, getting another one at some point. We're in an apartment right now, so I want to wait till we get into a house because, you know, even though pugs are not exactly energetic creatures, um, still in an apartment, it's just a bit too small. So getting a nice house with a yard, we can actually play in. Um, but absolutely, you know, we, we're definitely uh, a pug people. In fact, I have a little niche pug, Aww. someone made of oh. one of our characters, uh, Yosha Pug, Princess Yosha Pug. Um, that, that's actually crocheted, but that's only because I do that, that I know. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I um, but yeah, no, um, we, I, we, and it's, we've been both cat and dog people. I mean, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make, uh, when I did Pugmire, I wanted to make sure there was a separate cat game because I knew there are people who were like, you know, ah, that's cool, but I'm a cat person. <laughs> um, and also I want to make, I want to make sure it was a distinct game because there are differences like you know pugmire is pretty straight up it's uh you know high fantasy you know very kind of uh, of english myth style robin hoods we're gonna get together and get a party and go off and do things um monarchy's mouse much more kind of renaissance italy so there's politics um there's a little more intrigue uh uh they're, they're, they're still getting together and, and going off and, and fighting monsters and, and trying to, to solve problems i mean they're still good cats um but also, if, if they can make things a little better for themselves, suppose everybody else, that would be better, you know. So I, I felt it was important to kind of get those two different experiences, right? So that's why there's a – the game's completely crossover. You can play characters from both in the same game. Um, and even with Fetch Quest, um, uh, one of the stretch goals we hit for – I just talk about that. Fetch Quest is a card game we're putting out in the world of Pugmire. That's a cooperative deck-building card game we just kickstarted. Um, and, of course, because it starts from Pugmire, it, the six characters are dogs, but the one stretch goals we hit was having six cat characters. So you can just swap the cat characters in and play with the exact same cards, but the, the abilities they have means that the play is a little different, whereas the dog cards are much more, I'm going to help you do this thing, and you're going to help him do a thing, and he's going to help me do a thing. And the cat cards are much more like, I'm going to do something awesome and screw all y'all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really cool right now so it's just a different style of play but it's, again it's just a simple switching a few cards you get a slightly different feel um but it allows people who really love cats to be able to have that experience as well very cool i'm actually the whole show i've been sewing cat toys yay so <laughs> so, so yeah my my business is all well pretty much pet related so i'm very into dogs i i have no idea what that's like <laughs> And guinea pigs. And guinea pigs. We, and I, and I'm trying to... Oh, I was just going to say quick. My my business started because we ended up with a Pomeranian um, oh, cool. in 2002. We, we got a little Pom. And so he was he was the inspiration for my business. So. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, I mean, same for me. When, when uh, I got yeah. laid off from video games, um, as I worked for myself, and I was like, I, you know, I... I have sit in my office all day. It was just me and the dogs. And then I drew a lot of inspiration from them and, and frankly support from them. When I started doing my own business stuff. So, mm -hmm. Well, yep. she's done the dog treat business. I've kind of centered myself around either a creating entertainment things. Like I'm trying to write and I really want to make a comic book, but that's turning out to be a terrible <laughs> thing to be able to finish. But I also learned that I can create role-playing games using other people's stuff like bullet journals. So 
is that. Okay, it's, I mean, uh, especially with game design, um, I feel like hard. it is, but a lot of people start from, from derivation, and I think it's a natural place to start. It's like, how do I make this game I love better? How do I make this thing I like into a game? Um, that's a natural starting point for design, and then you, you build and tweak and grow and eventually start making new and different stuff, but um, uh, philosophically, I find that innovation in game design is disproportionately rated. Um, a game that uses existing design extremely well generally, in my experience, is better regarded than a game that does something innovative kind of okay. Um, so learning how to take an existing thing and make it better is actually closer to... Because really a lot of game design is, I want, I, I want to make a thing. I put in all the stuff I think is going to make it work. And then I start subtracting the stuff that's not working. And then keep doing that, and eventually you have a game. Um, so the idea of I'm gonna sit down and make a game and it's completely forms and, and works exactly the first time is is not at all how it works. Um, I mean, uh, when I first worked on uh, Fetch Quest, it was okay. I want to do a card game. Okay, it's it's Pugmire. So what was that going to be? Well, one of the key concepts of Pugmire is that I don't want it to be. Uh, the, the concept is cooperative. You know, dogs work together. Um, I, I don't. I love player versus player style games, but. Pugmire is not one of those properties. There's a ton of that. So I want to, so it's going to be a cooperative game. Okay, well then, right there, I have some concept. Um, it's got to be a card game. I don't have room for any components because of the designs going for us. Okay, well, then I can't use a board. I can't use dice. It's all got to be in the cards. Um, and so that starts to help me narrow it down. And then it's looking at games that are like the things I want to make. It's like, okay, you know, I want to make a cooperative game. Well, deck builders seem pretty common in the cooperative space. So let's look at... The Dresden Files game. Let's look at Starcore. Let's look at um, uh, you know some of the other games that are competitive deck builders. Some of the games are cooperative but not deck builders. And let's take bits and pieces of those. And so I made a couple of versions of it that were basically this game but with dogs. Um, and then I okay, what 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 works about that? What doesn't work about that? And then let's make a different version. Of what works about that? And then take all the pieces that work and jam those together, and then start to refine and make sure they all fit. I mean, so taking existing design. Doing things like house rules for Monopoly, even you know stuff like that, um, is 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 extremely valid way to to figure out how it works because a, a lot of it is trial and error. I mean, you can do some statistical analysis, you can do some math to try to figure out how things work. Um, I don't rate that too strongly. There, there's a validity for statistical modeling uh, and people who could do that. I, I'm genuinely envious of, um, but also people have to parse this stuff. Uh, and if it's, if people at the table aren't getting what your statistical model is trying to do, then it's not helpful. Um, if you have a good experience at the table and then there's strong math to back it up, that's the sweet spot, you know? Um, but you start from, we know this thing works. How can we improve that? Why is this improvement working the way it's good? Why is, I made this change I thought would work and now it's not, why is that not working? By doing that kind of stuff and learning from it, it's just like writing. It's like you try something and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and you just keep trying and do, you, you know, you, you do a little better, you do a little better. I mean, you know, I keep thinking, I always think of adventure time. It's like before you're good at something, you have to suck at it. And it's the truth. So, I mean, you know, taking something like, hey, I've made a role playing game from Bullet Journal. That's something no one's done before. And it's really cool. But also, you can start to say, okay, what is it about Bullet Journal that leads to a compelling gaming experience? What is it about this thing that 
people want to play and think it's fun. Okay, can I make a game using what I've learned from that in a different place? And how do I build on that? That'll be the next step. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you're gonna make a bunch of stuff. And if you're anything like me, you're gonna have two really cool game ideas and 55 broken carcasses <laughs> littering on the road towards those two great game designs. Probably. I, I have a, an elaboration question. Um, I've, we've, we don't play a lot of games. So when you say deck building, do you get all the cards and you build a deck from all of those or? Uh, no, um, that's a good point. Uh, so deck, uh, when I say deck building, um, it's a genre of game that's come out relatively recently. Um, but the idea is that um, during the course of the game, you acquire cards through gameplay that then add to your personal deck. Um, so, like for example, with Fetch Quest, um, uh, each dog character, your dog pioneer, um, you have a starting deck of six six cards. Um, there are mind cards, skill cards, and war cards. So, of course, the magic user character starts off with more mind cards than war cards because she's going to cast spells and and think of cool things to do. Whereas the the bulldog warrior, he's going to have more war cards than mind cards because he's a big tough guy. He's not not so much with the thinking. Um, so. Each person they have the six decks, and you play those cards. But then, during the course of gameplay, there's a what's called a fortune deck, and there are um, some cards face up that, as you defeat things in with the game, you draw cards as rewards, and those get into your hands. And so, as you play them and discard them, they naturally get added to your deck. And so, you build your deck slowly through gameplay. So, if you're playing, and you can pick up any card you want to, but the the kind of immediate obvious strategy is well, there are cards that give me more mind stuff, and I'm good at mind stuff, so I should probably get more, the wizard should probably have more cards that involve minds. The the thief should probably have more cards that involve skills, so I'll tend to take those cards. And then on top of it, um, each of the six characters has a keyword. And what a keyword means is that certain cards um, have a moderate amount of investment, but they have an additional benefit if played by a character with that keyword. So you're gonna try to get the really powerful cards to that specific character that can use it. Um, so a, a part of the game design is that you're not only taking cards and putting them into your deck, but as the game evolves, you want to get to specific cards faster. So you're also trying to then get rid of excess and least useful cards, either by giving them to other players or removing them from the game. So the design is, it, it, it's a bit like the Magic the Gathering style of making a deck and then putting it down to just things it's working on, but that all happens during gameplay as opposed to outside of it. And that's been my disconnect, is I've played Magic the Gathering, but that's a collectible card game where you buy all the cards, but right. Fetch Quest would have everything ready to go. It's just yeah. build the deck as you go. See some of this? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you buy, yeah, you buy the box, um, and then uh, um, as, you game, as, you, as you play, you build up your deck in a way that makes sense. And then next time you play the character, different cards may come up, and you may not be able to make the deck the same way. Um, so it's... Imagine if each game was opening five boosters of magic cards and trying to make the best deck out of it. It's kind of the same idea where you're taking whatever cards show up and trying to make the best possible immediate hands and long-term deck based on the cards that come available through gameplay. All right, hon. Let's, uh, let's put an order in on that. <laughs> I, I, want, I want the wallpaper um, <laughs> and the pins. I want pins. Yeah, would, the, um, <laughs> the Kickstarter ended, but uh, we do have a backer oh, kit. So, well, the backer kit, um, we do have, if you, I believe if you click on the um, 
there's a button there that says pre-order or um, uh, back or something like that. Um, if you go to that, then you can pre-order the box set. I believe the pins are still available, uh, okay. stuff like that. So yeah, you can get some of them, certainly. <laughs> um, another thing that I see, okay, so first of all, I signed up to your newsletter for free stuff. Cause Thank you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and, and then under this buy my work, tab here i see tunnels and trolls adventures yes i beta tested that really i think <laughs> yeah. the, the, the mobile game yes they were a booth at retro gaming expo okay. a couple of years ago and they had um yeah they had tablets and they had you know headphones and a bunch of little chairs and and you you could sit and play the game, and I mean I'm totally clueless. Um, <laughs> I I died. I got to put yeah. my little tick mark on the board underneath, you know what kind of death I got with everyone else. Does well, that sound familiar, DJ? You, yeah, that's you the game you showed me that I you wanted me to play, but I didn't play. So okay, I know what she's talking about. <laughs> we we actually we played a game of it on a podcast. The group of us did. Oh wow. Um, because I had it on my iPad and I was reading everything and, and showing the screens and then the, you know, the guys, we were all figuring out what direction we wanted to take each time it gave us an option. And I'm pretty sure we ended up with arrows in our back every time too, yes. but <laughs> we really did well together. It was probably the best I ever did on that game and so i yeah i was really shocked to see that on this list because you know we keep realizing how small the world really is through our connections and um yeah so i have i i had that as a as a beta and we played it a few cool. times so <laughs> yeah i worked i worked on the uh, uh i helped them with the initial uh system design on that in terms of game system not code or or, or, or technological system um and then uh earlier this year slash later last year um i, I went with I, I went through them to kind of like help rewrite some of the initial adventures to get it you know, move from a tabletop role-playing game adventure to something that works on a mobile screen um uh, but yeah, I mean the the app is. I know the app is available now uh, through Android and iOS. It's free to play. Um, you could buy certain adventures. You want to play them over and over again, or you could play a certain time number of times a day. You will die a lot, um, but you won't die nearly as much as in the beta. <laughs> we worked on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that. That's good because it was. Um, I remember one time one of the games that I played. I'm sitting there creating my character, and then the first thing I did, I died. Yeah. So <laughs> I spent way more time creating my character than I did living. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> that event, Yeah. Um. That was a, a, an extremely hard adventure, and that's one of the things we talked about. Now there's an entire path that leads you up to that adventure, so I can like there's easier adventures in front of that. And, just, and, and that's one of the things we worked on and stuff like you know what the experience point curve is and what the I'm down at dice and points. I mean, so it was a lot of it was a lot of my work was specifically that kind of tweaking design like we were talking about earlier. Is is okay now that we've got the rough game. I start pulling stuff away and revising it so that way there's a natural progression. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of uh, spreadsheets and discussion. But... 
but yeah, yeah, it is a small world. I mean, it, we this is a small industry. A lot, a lot of us know each other, and that's that's one of the things I love about working in this is that you know I can go to a show and go, hey, it's so and so. You know, I mean, um, I've gotten to work with uh, some amazing people like uh, Dave Grossman, for example. I mean, he's just a guy who worked on um, the Adventures of Monkey Island back in the '90s. He worked on uh, Maniac Mansion and video games. Um, he helped found Telltale Games. This guy is a legend. But I get to work with him, learn some amazing stuff with him. Um, with him, I got to work on a game based on Futurama and work with one of the writers from the Futurama TV show. It's just crazy how small this industry is. Do you find that there are certain areas of the U.S. or certain states or cities that are are more centered? Like, like for example, when we came out to Portland, you know, we find out that, that Dark Horse comics is out here and mm -hmm. Brian Michael Bendis is out here and, and now image so comics so is also out here so this is yeah. the second largest comic book city in the nation I believe it so, um definitely the west coast there's a lot of it out there um in fact uh most of my clients are either on the east coast or the west coast because uh, I work a lot of I'm a freelancer I mean uh, uh, so a lot of my work is I work for other people as a contractor and a lot of my clients are East Coast West Coast and particularly challenging when I just talked about earlier when I was living in Ireland and there's an eight hour time difference is they're really tough for the West Coast people mm -hmm. um, but uh, in terms of board games and tabletop games uh, the Midwest actually has a fairly large showing um, and my my gut on that is that um i mean well it's it's uh it's all started coming in wisconsin uh lake geneva is where tsr started and where tabletop role-playing game kind of grew up um and even then though uh, uh that stemmed from uh, tabletop uh, historic miniature gaming um which is also very popular in the midwest um and i think part of that is because it's relatively cheap entertainment um so you don't have to you can spend you know, now in modern day money, 30, 40, 50 bucks in a game, but you can play it for hours and days. Um, you know, it's not like uh, you spend 50 bucks for two people to go to the movies, it seems like these days. You know, you've got two tickets and food, it's 50 bucks right there. Whereas 50 bucks for a board game, you can play that for a very long time. Um, and so in the Midwest, the cost of living is a little bit lower. Um, it's it's more, more value for money and also cheaper for businesses with small margins to operate because cost of living is lower. You know, the amount of money you make in role playing games, you can get a small house in say Pittsburgh, but not in San Francisco. Um, so can you do uh, anything to get a house in San Francisco? Uh, <laughs> I, my wife got a, a video game job offer in San Francisco. We're looking at housing prices and it's just like, I can't it's just, oh. it's ridiculous. Um, and, and frankly, Dublin's starting to get that bad too. Another reason why we had to leave. Um, so, I mean, it, it but I mean, West Coast particular, um, because media is becoming so uh, homogenous, um, movie studios are out there, and like you say, comic book studios are moving out to the West Coast, and book publishers. You know, East Coast has predominantly been uh, uh, book publishing. New York is like the center for book publishing for a very long time. Um, but TV, you know, also television networks were based in New York. Um, but as that grows, that gets muddier. Um, here in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, past eight or nine years, uh, they've been offering a, a, a very good uh, tax program for video game for media companies, general, specifically for video games and for uh, movie studios. So, like huge chunks of the event, uh, last Avengers movie was shot here. 
Um, yeah, I noticed Georgia on the on the credits at yep. the end. It's always that peach in Georgia. Right, that, that, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. If you want the tax credit, you have to show the thing on because yep. it, the idea is. <laughs> Oh hey, you know it's basically advertising at the end of all of these things. You know the video games. You'll see sometimes this the opening of video games. You'll see the Georgia Peach because there's some okay. pretty strong video game studios here. Um, so that's a weird. That's starting to grow, and so there is kind of a a a, a southern media that's starting to kind of grow up recently. Um, you know, Detroit's starting to get people because again, it's super cheap land um, in Detroit. So companies that startups that need a, a place to set up and can't afford to go to the east or west coast they can go somewhere like detroit all their employees can work remotely or whatever you know and and set up shop there so i mean it's starting to change um but traditionally it has been for the bigger media east and west coast for the smaller more niche hobby industries the midwest i know that most of the rpg centric podcasts are from the midwest mm -hmm. In fact, um, Dan from Fear the Boot made the joke that if someone nuked St. Louis, you would take out 90% of the RPG podcasts on the internet. Yeah, if someone nuked uh, uh, Ohio, they'd probably take out about half of the RPG industry. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I used to live in St. Louis, actually. But I, I, I kind of like the idea of St. Louis because I'm also a, I, I'm, I, I play chess a lot and, and St. Louis has recently become the chess capital of the United States. So I didn't know that most most of the big name players are moving to St. Louis because the St. Louis Chess and Scholastic Center, which is their main chess facility, is really putting on some good shows and they're putting out money The Rex Sinkfield is the guy that owns it and he's. He's throwing money at chess all over the place, so everybody wants to be around him because he's doing good things. That's cool. I had no idea. Um, just, I just want to let you know, DJ, I don't want to live there. Uh, I, I, I don't want to move back to the Midwest either. So <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoy Portland. Yeah. Um, I've heard good things about Portland. It's, uh, it's... We came out here because the there's there's more open-mindedness and acceptedness of things that aren't mainstream where we came from i just described it to somebody today too as it's hard right super christian people that refuse to accept any other buddy any any descending opinions at all sure so we moved we moved from one extreme to a middle ground which has been great but mm -hmm. uh i i was going to say something and i've been completely derailed and my, my mind went I'm getting old, but uh, that's great. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm. Uh, I. I have split loyalties now, but I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan from a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> I don't follow American football, sadly. Oh. And, oh. and, and, and it's typically it's a qualifier because I mean, for a long time, I was like, I don't follow sports. I mean, I grew up in Ohio. So my sports teams were the Cleveland Browns or the Cleveland Cavaliers. So just really just didn't – and the Cleveland Indians. So it's just like I shouldn't even bother following sports. They're all going to lose. Um, but uh, so for a long time, I just didn't follow professional sports. And then uh, you know, I, I, now I watch some professional wrestling, which is sports entertainment. Um, but uh, recently I really got into rugby. Actually, Ireland got me hooked on rugby. So I've been following that a lot more. Um, but I still haven't quite picked up the, the taste for American sports. I, and my wife can attest to this, I used to be really into professional wrestling, mm. um, but I, I kind of fell out 
after I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I've been watching. I, I, I watch a show every once in a while, mm-hmm. but I, I haven't really watched a lot since I want to say like 2010. Does that sound it's right? Been, been quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what I, what I noticed is the same thing that old school wrestling fans that used to tell me stuff uh, is the same thing happened with me is that I stopped liking the way it evolved into what it is now. So, I mean, I, I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but it just doesn't appeal to me. So if you like the slightly older school, like clear heroes and villains kind of thing, and, and they slightly over the top storylines, um, may want to check out a show called Lucha Underground. Um, okay. it's, on the, it's on the El Rey Network, uh, but it is um, it's uh, the AAA Mexican Wrestling Federation has worked working with the El Rey Network to do uh, an American show. But what's fascinating about it is that first of all, it's very lucha libre. So you know, there's the there's the the rudos and the the heel, you know, good guys and bad guys. Um, but also, it's shot like a crime noir story that also happens to involve things like manifested gods and people coming back from the dead and angels like you do. Um, so it's kind of like Scion as a wrestling show, really. It's it's just slightly bonkers. And the, and, the, and it's paced like a TV show, which is interesting. It's, like, it's not like people go in, they wrestle, and then there's vaguely a storyline. There's actually plot threads that go on for several episodes. Um, and sometimes the people in the ring don't probably know what's going on with the plot line. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a very different take on wrestling. That's much draws much more from how television episode television is written these days. Um, but it has, again, that lot of, of, of over the top, like one of the characters is Mil Muertes, the thousand deaths. And so he literally comes back from the dead every time, you know I mean? It's, 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 it's undertaker's level of bonkers, but it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. The, uh, the conceit is it is an underground wrestling ring run by a guy who just likes violence um, and, and he's very over the top. And the, the, the actor playing him originally starred in telenovela soap operas in Mexico. I mean, so he just totally gets the right level of camp in terms of pitching it. It's, it's a fun show. Um, if, if, you're, if you like the older style of wrestling, you may appreciate it. The first okay. two seasons are on Netflix, actually, too. Really? Yeah. Oh. At least it was last I checked. Let me double check right now. Okay. Because I was kind of poking my nose into Chikara Pro, which looks interesting too. Chikara, Chikara is similar. It doesn't have the same production values or the working plot line, but it has a, a lot of the guys who worked in Chikara, some of them come over to Lucha Underground. So you'll see a lot of similar stuff. And the thing that caught my attention with Chikara is um, he was on a podcast that I wouldn't have expected a wrestling personality to be on. And I was listening and he explained the storyline behind one of their seasons where they basically pretended that Chikara broke up and all these people were wrestling in independent things and that there was this big fan movement to get everything back and then he was going to swoop in and start a new Chikara Pro or something like that and built the company back up and that was a storyline the whole time and he's like it was a big risk but we pulled it off. Yeah, Jakara, they do they do lots of, of season writing, so like they'll do stuff like that too. Um, and but they also have like uh, um, actually some of the Jakara guys have since gone to WWE. So like um, there was a character called El Generico who was like the generic luchador, <laughs> um, uh, but now he's Sami Zayn at WWE, and it's like a, a, a moderately big star oh, at WWE. I know so, who that is. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, so some of the Jakara guys 
you know, have, have, have grown up and gone to the big leagues. Um, but yeah, Jakara just has, again, similar bonker stuff, like a, a tag team that's called player one and player two. Um, <laughs> there's one tag team that they, they believe they are the manifested gods from Egyptian mythology. I mean, it just, it's, I personally love that kind of just completely we're, we're selling the fact that this is utterly supernatural and, and it's absolutely about deep, important character building things. And also you're throwing each other around the ring. I, I personally find that to be entertaining. I also like WWE for different reasons. I mean, I, I, I don't dislike it. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Chikara Pro, Lucha Underground. Also, um, New Japan has started doing some English language shows similar. Maybe also be useful. But well, yeah, I, started I, watching, I started watching WWE before WrestleMania 1. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I really stopped enjoying the whole thing right before the second brand extension i know i know that there was a yeah there was a gap before that but it's, it was a couple of years before the second one i just stopped being in and i mean would, the, the brand extension kind of ruined everything for me because they were like we're going to compete with each other no you're not right <laughs> uh to be honest I, uh, a lot of my dream of wdb comes from nxt these days frankly because there's doing some really interesting and extremely talented people go on nxt and they live there i'm there for a couple of years do some amazing stuff and then they go to the main brand and Nothing happens, which is extremely unfortunate. But um, like uh, the women's division in NXT was just amazing for a long time. Like they're doing stuff like hour-long Iron Man matches in the women's division. Um, you know, brutal before, three out of five, three out of five falls matches, stuff like that. Before Impact Wrestling became a thing, when TNA, before Hulk Hogan came to TNA, yep, the women's division was what i was watching in tna yep. because it was more interesting than anything else going on and then they just ruined it yeah yeah, yeah. uh nxt they just had a the downside of nxt is like as the as a changeover as as people go up um so sometimes it kind of sort of reboots or every wrestlemania roughly which is sometimes frustrating um but they just uh they had a character a woman called asuka on there and she she really like had a almost two year two and a half year winning streak and little Five foot tall Asian woman is just murdering people. It's, it's fantastic. Um, the last time, not the last time I watched, the time before the last time I watched was they were talking a lot about her. Like they had a big, huge three minute promo for her introduction. But then I poked around and yeah, I saw that she was in NXT. But I don't know. It, uh, <laughs> if, if, if the mainstream WWE was doing something with a women's division like TNA yeah, did yeah. way back, they're, would... they're starting to. They they are actually. I mean, they just they did a um, uh, it's 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 fading off. They had like a, a all women Royal Rumble. They just did a women's line of the bank ladder match. Um, I will say uh, you may want to check the most recent um, uh, takeover, which is their kind of NXT pay per views, because um, it's currently a. Uh, you know, the storyline is basically um, two guy, two tag team partners were very popular tag team. One guy turns in the other, and they've been feuding for about a year. Um, uh, the heel, the, the bad guy is uh, Tommaso Ciampa, um, and he is so hated right now. He doesn't have theme music. He just walks out, and the crowd starts chanting and yelling at him, and that's his theme music functionally. Is them just abusing this guy? They hate him so much, and he's so good at being being a bad guy. Um, and they had a uh, um, uh, false guy anywhere match, 
uh, at uh, Takeover, and it's and frankly, I mean, really, as long as pay per views that are like five matches and all of them were good, and that was the best match of a whole bunch of really good matches. I mean, there wasn't really a weak match the entire thing. Whereas most W pay per views, frankly, it's like okay, three quarters of a second fast forward past, you know. Um, the NXT stuffs are generally pretty good. It's just it's an hour long show. It's tighter. I think it's probably, frankly it's tighter. That really helps. So yeah, I should maybe I'll start watching NXT. The the thing with that one guy being hated and whatnot. What worries me is that Vince is going to go. Oh hey, now we should make him uh, a, a hero because we can do that with you know just forcing it down everybody's throat like they tried yeah. to make Roman Reigns hated and it just they couldn't get him to be popular or hated either way for the longest time no i agree um uh, um a lot of them frankly get a little bit squandered when they move up to the main card but i mean i still watch it because it's it's on but i mean it comes out to it's like uh, i have raw in the background i'll have smackdown in the background i'll kind of vaguely watch it but when next he comes on i will watch it because i mean i mean it's it's training programs. So sometimes it's you know only two or three matches, and it's sometimes you know they're not great because they have new people coming out and trying out. So I mean, it's not always gold, um, but the takeovers in general, all of them have been entertaining. So every three months they do one, and it's always been pretty good. I mean, whenever whenever Raw and SmackDown comes to Atlanta, we don't bother. NXT comes to Atlanta, we make sure we get seats. So we uh, we went to a taping of WCW Saturday Night one night. So we were oh, on wow. TV for three weeks in a row. Because we were in the we were on the camera side in the front row. Nice. And we also attended a SmackDown in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And that I I didn't not only was that not anywhere near the other experience, I had great fun at the WCW WCW Saturday night. Mm-hmm. But but the SmackDown, it was I don't know, it, it felt it felt like I was on the TV show. But there wasn't any we like we didn't get to see any of the backstage stuff and yeah. and everything that was happening in the ring was, you know, when when there wasn't a match or somebody talking in there, it was just kind of like dead air. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've been to some. I've been to a few WrestleManias. I've been to a couple of WWE. I mean, hell, I've got my Shinsuke Nakamura shirt on right now. Um, but the NXT live events are always a lot of fun. Um, Ring of Honor. I've been a couple of those shows. Those are fun. Anyway, I could talk about wrestling all day. <laughs> the short term of all of that was that if you do want to check back in, I would I would suggest Lucha Underground because again, the first two seasons are on Netflix. Watch that if you enjoy that. You probably like more of that, and then if you like that, you probably like Chikara too. The the Chikara thing. I haven't found any more to sample. A full show. I found matches, but I haven't found a yeah, full. Yeah, you have to buy them. They sell DVDs. It's the only way you can really see it. Last I checked. So the way they're only DVDs. You can, they're not like uh, downloadable stuff. I don't think so. No. Oh my god, that's even worse. <laughs> I feel so sorry for them. Yeah, I mean they may have changed recently. It's, it's been a few years since I've checked on them, but last I checked, it was like you had to buy a DVD. They may they may have a downloadable thing now. I know New Japan has a, a website where you can actually get us a, a, a monthly subscription to watch the videos online. So some yeah. of them are catching up. Yeah, if if that was DVD only, that would be that would be it right there. Yeah. And now that we have not uh, the the other two left while we were talking <laughs> wrestling, we can we can include them. So I want to get a drink. Oh hi. <laughs> um, wait, I did too, and I didn't bring it back with me. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Good thing you said something. So, 
in recent months, or recent years, in recent months, we have tried to keep the show to like two hours, which we're technically coming up on. But if nobody cares, we can just go out as long as we want. Well, actually, I was going to say, I mean, I probably should go because it's, it's midnight my time. And then, you know, I do need to get some sleep. So Okay. So um, hang out after I end the show, Eddie, for just a bit. No problem. So we'll, we'll wrap her up now. Do you want to plug anything other than what we've already plugged most of the show? <laughs> Um, well, to be fair, uh, if you want to uh, um, chat with me online or follow my stuff, um, I'm at any social media website at uh, EddieFate. That's E-D-D-Y-F-A-T-E. Um, you can go to my website, EddieFate.com. Um, and if you want to know about Pugmire specifically, which is my creator-owned stuff, uh, all the Pugmire stuff is at RealmsofPugmire.com. Oh, I didn't know there was a separate website. I've been going to the Onyx Path website. Yes, there's, there's this because the, um, the, the Realms of Pugmire has uh, not only the Onyx Path stuff, but also things like um, one of the anthologies I wrote for. Um, we're working on interactive audio drama for uh, Pugmire, which will be coming out for Alexa and iOS soon. So it's kind of one-stop shop to get all of your Pugmire goodies. Sweet. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, Eddie. No problem. Thank you for having me. And Kevin, I'm glad you you came and showed up being the uh, the only host that uh, other than myself and Trisha that show up on a regular basis. <laughs> I made sure it's clear tonight, but sorry for not speaking much. He just dominated the conversation and but you're, you're you're traditionally quiet most of the time anyway. Yeah, because he talks so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, that's how that works. And of course, my my wife. It's it's good that you joined us too. And we actually had some cool conversations. You thought you were going to be out for the whole thing, and we did. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I did find I did find some 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 stuff to talk about. There you go. See. All right. So for the viewers and listeners, if you're listening to the audio version, uh, this will be it. But um, like I told Eddie to hang out a little bit, and we will see you uh, as soon as possible on the next episode of the Greatest Show. So say, say goodbye, everybody. Bye everybody. Bye everybody. Bye, everybody.